this is the best review that we've ever gotten. Wait, what does it say? It Hold says, on. a great listen. These three hosts are all friends, and listening to the podcast feels like they are educating you into their friend group. The dynamics are amazing, and the historical ladies are, or the historical women are awe-inspiring. It's a lecture in history class the way there is zucchini and muffins. 14 out of 10, great merch, too. I love you. Elizabeth, thank you for being a listener. But there are at least 60 of you who listen every week, which still blows my mind. I don't know who you totally are. blows my mind. Um... But anyway, especially because only two of them are me. I love you. I don't know who you are. I hope you're enjoying it. Is it that they're pronounced museums? <laughs> Lexi's doing little fists at me because she says museum. <laughs> oh, that's. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you miss in history class. Lexi, what's your favorite museum? From a sentimental place, the National Museum of Natural History. Just the best memories and the best experiences I've ever had have all been there, but mainly because I have had the chance to intern there twice. Well, technically I was an intern for the Smithsonian Libraries, but physically it was in natural history. And I took classes there, several classes there, and the content is just very much what I'm interested in. And Haley, what's your favorite thing about museum? Museum of Natural History in the uh, Smithsonian one down in DC. I also worked, I worked there, I took classes there too. And every time I walked in, I felt like I learned something new. I did not, I was like not bored. I was having such a fun time. And I feel like that's with a lot of really good museums is that it doesn't matter if it's your first time or your 22nd time. You're going to learn something new, have a lot of fun. And I'm Alana, and museums are not neutral. Should we elaborate? They see that, like, oh, museums are places of documenting history. Yeah, history I feel is like... Neutral. I feel like a Is lot it, of people but... outside of the industry, outside of the history interpretation industry mm-hmm. and outside of the science, interp- outside of informal education would probably be like, but museums are telling facts and they wouldn't think about the fact that there is people behind every exhibit and every single object that's on display and that a person is making decisions. And it's all about like bias and like where is the money yeah. the museum coming from huh like when your exhibit about like dinosaurs is funded by a company that produces oil there's lots of things there there's lots of there's lots of things there. there's lots of things to unpack there or like you know when your history museum staff is entirely white what does that say mm-hmm. or, i was you know. about to say that <laughs> that's a big one that's and that's a big one for us yeah that's like a that's, hefty that's boy. Our thing. like i've been in certain job interviews where the at least i won't make judgments about the whole group of people but at least the one directing the questions was white interviewing a bunch of people who are not white meant for a position for people who are not white mm-hmm. and it's just it's sometimes uncomfy and especially with this past 2020 when museums were just so happy to be like we hired a native person 
in the to be a curator for our native people's objects and it's like no shit like why you are you saying that's great yeah So I mentioned in my intro that the National Museum of Natural History has a really special place in my heart that, you know, if I had to pick a museum to keep open and, and all the other museums vanish into the sea, if I had to make that hard decision, obviously this is the one I'm saving. You know, like the train track, like run over all the museums to save one museum or like run over the one museum and save all the other museums. Girl, this, this, this museum, she has my heart. And museums are women like boats, except military museums. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, they're men. <laughs> anyway, this museum is really important to me. So I decided to talk about a woman related to that museum because real, real fast. I, uh, zoos and aquariums, living collections, non-binary. Absolutely. We figured it out. We solved it, guys. <laughs> there we go. Um, Oh my God, that's so accurate. But anyway, I decided to talk about a woman deeply related to this museum because I learned about her at the museum. I like kind of uncovered her story through some research there. And every time I was there, I felt this like connection to her. So she's not anyone like super, um, you know, well-known. She's just kind of an ordinary person, but that's what makes her really incredible. And yes, she is from the Women Extra and Ordinary Project uh, at the Smithsonian Libraries, which I have linked in the show notes. But her name is Sophie Lutterlow, and she is a Black scientist and a woman and an incredible person. And I'm going to tell you her story. Sophie applied for a job at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in 1943, and she was offered the position of elevator operator because at the time, normal people can't press elevator buttons. You have to be a trained professional. And so every time I'm in the elevator at the Natural History Museum, I think of her. Not that I've been in that elevator in a long ass time. Uh, also, it's one of the greatest ways to sneak into the back of the house. Not that I said that here, but if you forget your badge and you need to get upstairs, just go to the elevator person and schmooze a little. Can confirm this. So yes, they do still have elevator operators to this day. I don't know why they still have them since we are all not allowed to touch buttons, but I kind of love it because they're like a part of the museum and they're really friendly, nice staff and they always like get to know you and say hello. And so like they're kind of like a gatekeeper to the museum in a way. I think it's because I'm not, like, and I'm totally not 100% sure, but I think it's because the tradition of it. It's like one of the few That's things cute. that the Smithsonian has kept from it's like somewhat of inception. That's cute. The other thing is they don't have a lock on the third floor button. And I don't know how much that would cost to install, but maybe, maybe hiring four full-time employees or whatever is cheaper than installing a lock on the third floor button in those old ass elevators. I don't know. They also consider it like extra security because it's always a security guard. They are always security guards. So, and they know so much about the museum. They're like, We'll get into that because that's about Sophie. So she was told that her success in the role would determine whether other women would be hired as elevator operators in the future. Shortly after Sophie, two more women were hired based on her hard work. So she did a good job. During her lunch breaks, Sophie enjoyed exploring the museum. She learned about each exhibit and she would provide tips for visitors. So if they asked her, hey, is blank on display, she would tell them where and how to find it. 
And Sophie eventually became what she referred to as the One Woman Information Bureau, because at this time there wasn't like an information stand at the museum. That wasn't really a thing in the 40s and 50s. So she kind of guided them um, as like a gallery attendant, but really an elevator operator. And as a high schooler, Sophie had loved biology and taken a lot of classes in it. So naturally the biology exhibits were her favorite. She really liked the natural history collections and seeing the diversity of the biological specimens from around the world, that was really interesting to her. So while operating the elevators, Sophie had become close with many museum staff members, including some of the curators, because at the time when she worked there, all the collections were kept physically at Natural History, and so the curators would go to work there. Now, it's kind of split. There's some on-site and some off-site, so things are different today, but at the time, she was basically meeting the curators from every department. So I like to imagine that she met, like, some of the, like, anthropology curators that are, like, the predecessors to, like, the people that I love so much at the museum, and I just think that's really cute. But anyway, <laughs> in 1957, she asked the head of the insect department, uh, which is the entomology department, Dr. Clark, if he was hiring, Captain really enjoys bugs. And if there were any open positions that he had in his department. And he brought her onto the team as an insect prep preparator, which means she prepared specimens for storage by mounting and sorting them by species. And she learned on the job. She used textbooks and tips from fellow researchers and asked for help when she needed it and really self-taught to figure out how to identify specimens and she eventually became the research assistant of one of the entomology department's top curators and in this role she worked at the museum's collection of myria poda which are the family of insects that include centipedes and millipedes sophie took her job very seriously and she worked to expand her knowledge for the role by taking college courses in relevant topics and in 1965, she restored the museum's collection of 35,000 ticks, which had been collected previously. And the way they were preserved was an outdated technique. And so she had to find a way to, to really fix up that collection. And this happens a lot with museums collections that things that were collected in the past were kind of conserved in the way that was considered okay then, but it's not okay now and you got to fix it. So these ticks had been like dehydrated, which destroys the way that they're actually shaped and looked and a whole bunch of stuff. So she had to learn a technique to rehydrate them and get them to look their normal shape. It's pretty cool. She retired after 40 years working in the museum in her different roles as elevator operator, research assistant, preparator, you know. And she said that leaving the museum was one of the greatest challenges of her life, that she missed coming to the greatest place in the world every day because she had to retire. And like... <laughs> Bitch, me too. <laughs> the mite species Pygamophorus lutterloe is named in her honor. It was named by Dr. Clark, I believe. That's what the story says. I might be wrong, but it was named by Dr. Clark in her honor. And after her retirement, she moved to New Jersey to live with her only daughter and her granddaughter. And she spent her spare time singing in the church choir where she was a soprano. And Sophie passed away in 2009 at the age of 98. I love her. And the little picture of her with her little microscope is so cute.
speaking of a little microscope, my girl also has a picture of a microscope with her. Excellent segue there, Lex. To celebrate Museum Day and Florence C. Meyer Chase, who worked at the Smithsonian Museum, all my research comes from the Smithsonian archives and subsequent museums. Unfortunately, or like opposite of unfortunately, naturally, sure, good on that. Depending on how you like to consume your info, the archive entries of Florence are mostly images, like one at her microscope, and the labels on the images, and not super lengthy articles. And those images, a lot of it is thanks to Ruel P. Tolman, a former director of Smithsonian National Collection of Fine Arts, who kept a scrapbook of photographs of Smithsonian staff and like other really cool stuff happening around the museum. So thank you to him. And an edit, I found an article today that mentions her. And that's where more juicy stuff comes from. Cause like I knew a lot about her just from working at the Smithsonian. And I think there's a plaque and you'll understand where Lexi, uh, when I get to that part. However, Florence was a badass botanist that worked with the Radiation Biology Laboratory which was part of the Smithsonian's Astrophysical Observatory. And like parentheses and before then she worked at Columbia, but that's me being a Florence nerd knowing that she also came from New York City and I have more of a connection with her. Another name for the lab, or maybe just like this was another lab in the Smithsonian entirely, was the Laboratory of the Division of Radiation and Organisms, which was located in the basement of the Smithsonian Institution building, which is the castle that you see on like, like the big long stretch of Smithsonian buildings. That is also a very slept on museum of the Smithsonian's. Not many people go see it. It's really, really cool. It's like a little preview of all the other museums. Exactly, exactly. And in the archival post I found about this, she's photographed using the equipment they had to determine the wavelength effects on growing algae or like the, basically how sun affected plants and like plant growth. So the article I found today went into a little more depth on how this lab was obsessed with the, obsessed with the relationship of solar radiation and the earth. Well, that's just fine and dandy and super cool. This article also talked about how the Smithsonian buildings had ladders and trapdoors. Lexi, did you know about this? The ladders and trapdoors of building. Oh, yes. One of my favorite Smithsonian anecdotes is that a lot of scientists and people working in the museum would truly travel by these ladders and trapdoors. And in 1931, Florence was showing some of the visitors and like going from floor to floor of like the different buildings and departments, she would use the ladders and trapdoors. So like even demonstrate this when the elevator was too full are too packed in, like pack of sardines. And she went via ladder. Less fun is that while she was waving goodbye to some visitors, she forgot a trap door was open and fell through, breaking her back. Don't worry, she survived. She was taken to Garfield Memorial Hospital where she was taken care of, drum roll please, Dr. William Wiley Chase, head of the surgery department. So yes, this was in fact her meet cute with her husband. That's my favorite Smithsonian story. I love this story. 
<laughs> I think about this story. It lives rent free in my head. I pay it to live in my head. Yes. So something that's now super near and dear to my heart. I found one of the oral history interviews the Smithsonian has conducted, and I think they're still conducting them. Maybe the pandemic kind of like messed things up a little bit, but it's to preserve the histories of the museum or museums. Anywho, uh, T.D. Stewart, known as the father of forensic anthropology, <sighs> amazing man, was interviewed and his oral history, he spoke about the division of the physical anthropology department and, or it was called like the division of physical anthropology at the time. It was a weird, different name. Now it's like the department of anthropology and what came out of the department, like curation, collections, management, and research. Also the department Doug and I worked in. So my internship slash job couldn't have been possible with the help of so many list of long people. And one of those people was Florence. So thank you, Florence. Step back to allow customers to exit. When boarding, please move to the center of the car. Bonsoir, Margo. I was very torn about which lady to talk about today. Uh, but I decided on Louise Daniel Hutchinson uh, because my grandmother's name was Louise and my grandfather's name is Daniel. Uh, and they were actually founding members of the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. Uh, my grandmother was a lifelong patron of museums and was a volunteer docent at several Philadelphia museums in her later life. Uh, so this story is dedicated to Grandma Louise. Louise Daniel Hutchinson was a Gemini, like Haley, born June 3rd, 1928, which is exactly a week from when this episode comes out. And she was born in Ridge, Maryland. Uh, she lived at the Cardinal Gibbons Institute, where her parents, Victor and Constance Daniel, were principal and assistant principal, as well as literally the entire teaching force. But when Louise was six, the board at uh, the Gibbons Institute got pretty concerned about the Daniels' political activism and the family moved to Washington, D.C., where Victor and Constance were both employed by the federal government, so they weren't as affected by the Great Depression, like, as much as they could have been and as much as, like, other people absolutely were. Um, and her parents, as lifelong educators and activists, gave Louise a passion for, you're never going to believe this, education and activism. Plot twist. She wanted to turn that into a career, so she went to Howard University uh, because she wanted to be a social worker, which incidentally is what Grandma Louise did too. But Grandma Louise didn't go to Howard. I just really like that coincidence. But Louise Daniel graduated from Howard in 1951 with a major in sociology and a minor in history. She immediately started graduate coursework, but she got married to Ellsworth W. Hutchinson Jr. pretty soon after finishing undergrad. And then they started having children, so she didn't really have time to do grad school stuff. But she did continue her work in education by becoming a substitute teacher. After Louise and Ellsworth had their third child of an eventual six, they moved to Southeast DC and Louise stopped teaching for the most part to raise her own children. Uh, but then in April of 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated uh, and Washington DC erupted into four days of riots. 
And this relit the passion for activism in Louise. Uh, all her kids were a little bit older by this point, so she started working at the Southeast Neighborhood House, running their summer youth programs. Uh, the year before, in 1967, the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum had been started as a collaboration between the Smithsonian Institute and the Greater Anacostia People's Corporation. The Smithsonian wanted to bring Black people to the museums on the National Mall, and the GAPC wanted to bring resources and jobs to Anacostia. Uh, quick note, I'm going to keep calling it the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum, but it did become the Anacostia Community Museum in 2006. So if you go looking for it after listening to the pod, it's called the Anacostia Community Museum now, but I'm going to keep calling it Anacostia Neighborhood Museum, but it's the same museum. Why did it switch? I have no idea. I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe what I heard was that they wanted to encompass like all people from and currently in Anacostia, not just the physical space of Anacostia. That would make sense. Um, and neighborhood implied the physical space, physical but there space. are people who are Anacostians who don't live in Anacostia, like they move out. The director of the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum, John Kinnard, uh, wanted to hire Louise for a position at the museum, but he didn't really have the money, uh, so he recommended her for a job at the also relatively new National Portrait Gallery. Louise started at the Portrait Gallery in 1971, tasked with involving the minorities of D.C. in the gallery. Uh, She worked on the exhibit The Black Presence in the Era of the American Revolution. She also worked with two collections of Black portraits in an era before African-American studies as a field had really been established. Uh, But she, in her words, had lived a great deal of Black American history and personally knew a lot of people in the portraits, which was astounding to me. Like, I know we've lived in, like, through a lot of history, but wow. That's so wild. I guess there are people who like personally know the Obamas and they have portraits in the gallery. Anyways, social structures are so weird. Uh, About one year after taking the position at the National Portrait Gallery, she was appointed education research specialist and developed a cooperative education program between the Portrait Gallery and DC public schools. Uh, Apparently children were only like tolerated in the museum at this point, but My gal Louise was like, no, they're important to museums and they're good to have in museums. We just need to like be better about engaging with them. Lexi is doing snaps. I'm agreeing with the snap. Haley is nodding. I'm agreeing with the nodding. Now Lexi is dancing. I'm going to keep going with my story though, instead of like continuing to narrate what you're doing. Is that okay? (laughs) Okay. Louise took about a year off from the Smithsonian from 1973 to 1974 to work at the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site, where she taught other staff how to use artifacts to enhance exhibits, which is basically where archaeology meets museum studies, which is what the three of us do. So I am, I'm fa- I was figuring like so hard reading about this. I was just like, yes, our pre- our predecessor, our like matriarch louise daniel hutchinson you love to see it our spiritual thought leader our spiritual thought leader exactly uh then in 1974 john kennard uh had raised the funds that he needed to hire louise as the historian and director of research at the anacostia neighborhood museum where she literally started their oral history program 
and increased the AM's connection with the community and the larger Smithsonian's on the National Mall. So really realizing the dream that the AM was founded on. And I could keep going and elaborate a lot more, especially about Louise's historical research and published works, but my notes are already like twice as long as usual. Uh, so I will end by saying that Louise Daniel Hutchinson retired from the Smithsonian in 1986 and died in 2014, leaving a legacy of education and community that revolutionized my field of museum education and engagement. And that's kind of your guys' field too. I mean, kind of different areas of it, but that's really my focus. Uh, and I'm really glad I picked her because I think she's really cool. I think I made the right choice. The end. I love her. I love her so much. Also, I'm obsessed with her. We all pick Smithsonian lady. Like, yeah. But it's okay. Oops. But, but we're all Smithsonian ladies. I know. So I think of it course, makes sense. we're hoes for the Smithsonian. We're hoes for the Smithsonian. We're going to pick Smithsonian ladies. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes, a transcript of this episode, and our merch will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at LexiBeatDraws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Haley is doing the editing for this episode. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, get ready for an unlocked Patreon episode where we discuss Alana's favorite movie, Jojo Rabbit. You know, the dinosaurs get my little gay heart flutter. <laughs>